are standing by right now is the one and the only Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. <laughs> After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my go to my grave, testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? If they would do a movie about your life, who would you want to play your part? <laughs> Uh, well, George Clooney, of course. <laughs> Who else could it be? Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Prime Time with Sean Mooney. I hope you have had a great week. Uh, we're coming off a fantastic episode, a second visit on Prime Time with Brutus the Barber Beefcake. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I certainly did. And I, you know, loved catching up with the barber because, uh, you know, he tells it like it is, man. He just lays it out there. And uh, great to talk to him about all that has gone on since we last chatted. And boy, a lot certainly has. Uh, He was uh, inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. And, you know, I've always wondered what that process was like, you know, once you got that phone call that you were in. And, you know, after uh, Brutus waiting all those years for that recognition, uh, he got the call, and uh, he uh, was inducted, and it was uh, you know a great experience for him. And he he gives us a little insight to what goes on backstage and the whole the whole deal. And uh, you know he was inducted by his long lifetime friend Hulk Hogan. And the last time we chatted, remember they were still estranged; they weren't uh, talking to each other. And they got back together, and uh, you know the Hulkster gave him a, a great induction into the WWE Hall of Fame. And uh, things have gotten a little dicey since then, according to Brutus. Uh, you, if uh, you listen to the episode, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, you should, uh, should check it out. And we also got into a little more depth because you know everybody knows about that horrific accident that he was involved in, the parasailing accident that almost killed him. I mean, really, he almost died. But there was also a lot of other things going on in his life when that horrible accident took place. He had uh, invested a ton of money into a a restaurant that wasn't doing well. Uh, He was having a lot of difficulties, uh, had another divorce, and was not in a great place. Then on top of all that, that accident happened. And we really didn't talk about the first time around, so he went into a little more depth on that. It was really, really interesting. And you talk about persevering in one of the lowest, absolute lowest points in your life. Uh, That was the case for Brutus. So uh, if you haven't listened to the episode, please do. Also, we talked about his book. And I think it's one of the best wrestling books out there because Brutus has, you know, so many stories to tell uh, along his journey. And he's got a great sense of humor about it. Uh, It's called uh, Brutus the Barber Beefcake Strutting and Cutting. And if you go to BrutusBeefcake.com to buy the book, and as uh, Missy Beefcake mentioned, if you put my name on the subject line, if you put Sean Mooney on the subject line, uh, she will make sure that Brutus personally signs that book just for you. 
and then they'll send it out to you. So check it out, BrutusBeefcake.com. And, of course, I have a soft spot in my heart for Brutus, not only uh, for the time that I worked with him. He was always awesome. And then, of course, he was one of the first people to come on the podcast when we started welcoming guests every week. So I want to thank Brutus for coming on again. Uh, I want to also mention, I, I mentioned Hacksaw Jim Duggan, one of the original hosts here on the podcast, uh, had a big health scare recently, ended up in the hospital battling an aggressive infection in his body. And uh, his wife, Deborah, went on social media and uh, reported that he had had two surgeries. So it was pretty scary. And uh, he was doing better and that they believe they got all of it. So our best to Jim and his family uh, as he uh, battles through this. And folks, you know, go to his uh, uh, Twitter account, you know, uh, get on Twitter and and wish him well. Uh, Let's get him uh, back and healthy, back on his feet, back in the ring. You know, he's still out there, uh, literally. Uh, let's get him back out there and uh, wish him well. All you have to do is go to at official hacksaw on Twitter at official hacksaw. And a sad note this week, uh, uh, we learned that uh, in the world of professional wrestling, uh, you know, uh, we lost uh, Rick Bogner, and uh, you know, Rick Bogner who passed away suddenly on September 20th. That, according to his brother, uh, who posted the announcement on social media. Now, you know, Rick best known as Fake Razor, appearing with the WWE after Scott Hall and and Kevin Nash had uh, defected to the WCW. You remember that back in the 90s. And if you listened to that episode, you found out that uh, Rick Bogner was much more than an impersonator. Uh, He was a very skilled wrestler who paid his dues in the ring. He spent a lot of time in Japan. He had the scars to prove it. He was also a very skilled martial artist. And, uh, you know, just a a lot of layers to this guy. And uh, if you did not hear uh, that episode when it was first out in May, we re-released it this past week on Sunday, uh, completely ad-free. So check it out. Now, um, there may be ads at the front of it. Uh, We have nothing to do with that. That usually, uh, you know, usually the, the podcast platform will put those ads in there anyway. You have no control over it. But the the, uh, episode itself, though, is completely ad-free. So check it out. Just go to uh, you know iTunes or whatever your favorite uh, platform is and listen to that episode with Rick Bogner. And uh, certainly our condolences to Rick's family and uh, other loved ones as they uh, now deal with his loss. Uh, big shout out here to all of our Patreon members. I want to thank you once again for all your support. And we just keep adding new content all the time. Uh, for just $4.99, you can get every episode early and ad-free. And uh, if you join and become a Mooney or a Legion of Who member, there are many, many perks that come along with those tiers. We have watch-alongs, you know, know, all of your questions. You know, you get to submit questions for all of our guests, and every one of them will be answered. I tell them uh, who's asking, and uh, you guys are the only ones who get to hear those answers. Uh, We've got our AMAs, Ask Mooney Anything. We have a lot of fun with those. Our uh, Legion of Who members, you, know, you get your very own podcast uh, after you've been with us a while. And then uh, after a year, uh, a personal watch-along. You get to decide what you want to watch, uh, and we do it. We do it together. And so uh, there's a lot more. I hope you'll check that out as well. Just go to patreon.com slash primetimemooney, patreon.com slash primetimemooney. And I have a big announcement this week. Uh, we uh, recently... Uh, we. We put it out there. You guys uh, asked for it. You got it. More old school. He said, we want more old school. So we are adding a new podcast episode every week starting next Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern time. 
And we're calling it Network Classics PTSM. Network Classics PTSM. And every week we are going to feature episodes from Saturday night's main event, primetime wrestling, Tuesday night Titans, uh, superstars as well, and Raw. And what I'm going to do is my own commentary as you watch along with me whenever you would like. And you just uh, cue it up on the WWE Network, and then you hit play when I say to, and then come along for the ride. So don't miss Network Classics debuting next Monday at 6 a.m. And the first episode is going to feature the very first Saturday night's main event that aired on NBC on May 11th, 1985. And it is a fun one because, uh, like I said, it's the very first Saturday night's main event wrestling back on network television. It was, And it was shortly after uh, the very first WrestleMania. So the WWF was riding high then. So check it out. Our brand new edition, Network Classics PTSM. All right. Boy, I got so much to tell you this week, don't I? Uh, we have a very special episode this week. Uh, content I wasn't even aware that we had. Now, as you know, uh, or maybe some of you don't, but I was a part of StarCast 2, uh, that tremendous event that took place in Las Vegas. And, you know, I did a lot of hosting for many of the shows uh, on Fight TV. And I also had the great fortune to host a great event uh, in Las Vegas uh, featuring one of my all-time favorite superstars, Brett the Hitman Hart. Now, the show was called Sharpshooter, Brett Hart in his own words. And during our time together, we got to discuss a lot of topics and answered a bunch of questions I had always wanted to ask Brett. And on top of it all, you know, Conrad Thompson put StarCast together. Conrad uh, persuaded Tom McGee. Remember Tom McGee? Uh, he was supposed to be the next Hulkster. Well, uh, uh, Conrad persuaded him to come to Las Vegas and be on stage with us during that show to talk about his tryout match with Bret Hart. And uh, if you know about that match, it was uh, known to be one of the best tryout matches ever. Bret Hart made him look like, uh, like gold, and uh, it launched him into the WWF, and it really uh, was an awesome afternoon. So listen to this. Though. The great folks at Fight TV, you know, Mike Weber and that gang, they're just really awesome people. They sent us the audio, which I wasn't aware that we had. So when I heard that uh, we had it from Evan and Casey, I figured, you know what? We got to share it with our listeners. So here is the audio version of that amazing show, uh, Bret Hart. It's uh, the sharpshooter, Bret Hart, in his own words. Enjoy. Ding, ding, ding. Brett Sergeant Hart, the eighth child out of 12 for Stu and Helen Hart. Stu Hart, great wrestler in his own right, right? Yeah, you heard about all these wrestlers he's trained, the dungeon, you can still hear the screams. But he's a man who was destined to be in this business for life. And he knew better than anybody just how tough this business was. And I imagine along the way, he was hoping that his children might find a, a different way of life. But it wasn't meant to be. Along the way, all those boys stepped into the ring, but there was just one. One who was destined to be one of the greatest of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, the best there is, the best there was, the best there will ever be, Brett, the Hitman Heart. Grab a mic, have a seat. 
Woo! Guys, Bret Hart's here. <laughs> you had to get the coffee. We all got to get started, right? Need a little fuel. Yeah, got it going. How are you, my friend? Uh, I'm very good. Yeah? You know, I uh, couldn't help but think, what was going through your mind when you walked into Caesar's Palace? Uh, <clears throat> things uh, might come back, a few memories, uh, April 4th, 1993, maybe. Really, what, what, what's your, returning to the scene of the crime? Well, you know, I, I actually have really good memories of being here for the wrestle, was that WrestleMania 9? Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I was a little disappointed with the, <laughs> the plans they had for me in the future, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, other than that, I mean, it was great. I remember I got off the plane and there was, uh, you know, my face and my pictures of me with the belt and stuff were everywhere at the airport. And it was pretty, pretty, like in a lot of ways, it was, it was some of my greatest memories. It was the first time I was the main event at a, at a WrestleMania and uh, I was really honored. I will say that I had absolutely no, absolutely no expectation for what happened I was was my understanding as Vince had said to me from the the day I won the title he said that you don't have to worry about anything we're looking at you as a long-term champion you're gonna be champion here for a long time we're thinking six maybe seven years kind of going back to what Bruno did like where the champion holds the belt for a really long time and that Hulk Hogan would have no bearing on anything that I was doing <laughs> but uh, those were the the first lies that they kind of told me that uh, in the end it was like, like they totally lied to me. You know, they, they, they gave me no warning for that at all. And I know, I know people, you know, have a hard time understanding um, how it works. I'm not even sure how it works being champion, but I know that basically when you're the champion, when you have the belt in your bag and you're the, you're the guy, that you're the highest paid guy on the card. And that was a big honor for me, and I was making big plans that all the main event money I was going to be making. And instead, like when I came here, it was like, you know, I got um, demoted, basically, and uh, Hulk Hogan took my spot again. And it was a big disappointment, but, um, you know, I was, uh, I was a professional, and I, I, I was honored that they, they allowed me to be champion at all, let alone for a few months. But I did feel that they pulled the plug on me a little early at that time. You know, though, you, you work so hard, and this match really, uh, to me, kind of encompasses your, your career with the WWF because you were always somebody that had the business in mind, doing the right thing, uh, and then you came here. And uh, tell us about that conversation because I know in your book you mentioned that it really did floor you, that you weren't really expecting uh, this to come in. And, and you said, they said Hulk was not going to be a part of this. He was going to come in for a bit and then go and do promotion for his movie. Well, it was it was right out of nowhere. Um, I I was I was really baffled, but it seemed to me there was a bit of a panic, um, and I don't know all the details like 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 maybe I should or could know. But I think what was happening was Hulk Hogan was uh, trying to leverage Vince to give him a better contract than what uh, he was um, being promised over at WCW. And so Vince, to, to sort of stop Hogan from going to WCW, sort of 
sacked me and gave him gave him my promise, gave him my my opportunity to give it to Hogan again, which like I said, Hulk Hogan needed another run with the belt. Um, so I was very crushed by it. Like I was not what I expected to expecting when I got there, and uh, you know I, I was. And like I say, I always it's not the first time I had to lose a match or anything, and it was like I expected that the moment was going to come, but maybe a, a year or so later. But uh, at the same time, you're, you have to be grateful for what you got. And I had a strong feeling in my heart that uh, even though, um, like, the Hulk was the... I, I was a big fan of the Hulk myself. I mean, I, I admired him, and uh, I thought he was the, you know, basically the king of wrestling for us at the time. And he'd done so much for for the industry and all that, that when they came back, if they just told me, like, look, we're going to put the belt back on Hulk Hogan, I wouldn't have had a big problem with it. I just felt a little misled right to the last. They didn't give me any warning or any sense of what was going on. But I also sensed that um, the, the wrestling business was changing at that time period, and I think it's safe to say, I think that, that sh- the whole shtick that Hulk had with the behind the ear and the leg drop and the it was over. His run as a babyface had kind of come and gone, and I, I thought, even though the attendance had taken a dip through that whole time, which I don't think is any um, anything to do with me. I think it was more to do with um, all the sex scandals and the different scandals that Vince had at the time, with all the ring boys that were being molested by Terry Garvin and those guys. And so there was some bad things happening, and uh, attendance dropped off a little bit, and. Uh, but uh, I'd say most of the arenas were about three quarters full, if not full, and so it was like probably a. <clears throat> to me, it was like the fans that were coming to the matches now were looking for something different, yeah. and uh, I was lucky enough to be the guy that was the most over at that time, and uh, I just thought that <clears throat> I knew that. Um, I said to myself when I lost the title to Yoko, who lost it to Hogan, that uh, I would probably get it back in my mind. In my guess, I would probably get it back in about three or four months when they realized that Hulk was a bit dried up after. And, uh, you know, then by the King of the Ring, Hulk was, hadn't drawn that well and had, things were not going so well for him either. And I think he was get, making plans to go to WCW. And um, they... Um, <clears throat> I think needed to sort of pull me back and make me, you know, build me back up to be the champion again now that Hogan was going to leave. But I, I also think they decided that I needed a bigger guy, that I wasn't big enough. And um, so I think they started uh, grooming Lex Luger to be the next champion after that and sort of skipped me over again. And uh, I just remember the, the important thing that I like to have people remember is that. I remember after the match where I lost to Yokozuna, I can remember Hulk Hogan said to me, Terry came up to me and he said, uh, I just want you to know I'd be happy to return the favor anytime. And that guy was the biggest liar in the wrestling business. Well, I think everybody, though, here in this room would agree that uh, you are a great, a great champion in the WWF uh, during your reign. And uh, you mentioned Yokozuna because... Uh, a lot of people didn't realize how much he could do in the ring and also the way you helped uh, promote him. So, uh, the matches that you, know, you, you were able to do a, the sharpshooter with him. And you had some great matches with Yoko. Yoko, uh, you know, I never met a Samoan wrestler. 
that wasn't a phenomenal athlete. I mean, they could run, jump, swim, you know, do everything. They were just so athletic. And uh, Yoko may have been a big guy. When, I, when he was, at that time, I think he was only about 500 pounds. Um, which, you know, he could still move really good. He could move like a cat out there. And you'd be surprised at how quick and nimble uh, Rodney was. He was he was a really good athlete. And, you know, I, I remember him, he had a beautiful voice. He'd sing in the shower and stuff like that. You'd be surprised. Bet you didn't know that, that, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I... I, I I always kind of catered. When you're wrestling a guy that's five, six hundred pounds, um, it's easy to wear them down by just uh, dogging it out there. Like when he picks you up off the mat, if you if you make yourself heavy, you know, you go up for a body, he goes the body slam in, you kind of go dead weight on him. You know, they can throw you around. They're strong enough to throw you around, but they only got a marginal amount of gas in the fuel or fuel in the tank. You know, so they. They get tired fast, and you got, he's got to sort of recharge for a few seconds by lying on the mat. Or, so I always cater to, to Yoko by, I did all the running. I let him sort of stand in the middle, and I'd run into him and stuff like that. But I made it so, and I think he always appreciated that when I worked with him, that I allowed him to store his energy till the ending of the match. Because it was the kind of thing, if you want to, if you've got a 600-pound guy that, that's really tired and then he falls on you, <laughs> it could be your last match. So. And you never hurt anybody and thank God that uh, nothing major happened with Yoko. No, I was lucky that way, but I do remember he would, he would do that uh, leg drop. Yeah, I think people know who Bret Hart is. I don't think you need that. They would do, he would do his leg drop on me, and he had those red uh, um, nylon kind of tights that he had. Yeah. And he would, he would leave his whole imprint of his tights would be on my face. <laughs> and then maybe the next night he'd do it from a different angle, and then another angle. And then I'd start to have, like, skin like a lizard, you know. I really did. Uh, and I used to marvel at it because, you know, he was really safe. I don't remember Rodney ever hurting me, but I... I do know that, um, you know, I, every time I worked with him, when he, especially when he was following me on me, I usually took a deep breath and kind of closed my eyes. But I, um, I enjoyed most of the matches I had with Yoko, and um, we had a good chemistry together, and I think he, he liked the way we worked, and so did I. And I want to talk a lot more about uh, your road in the WWF, but uh, we'd be remiss. I know it's been a, a tough week, as it is every year for the Hart family, uh, and uh, they say that you die twice when you uh, first when you draw your last breath, and then uh, the second time when people stop remembering your name. And this week, I was it was awesome to see remembering Owen. And um, I'm sure a lot of thoughts in your mind this week about your little brother. Yeah, it's so May's a tough month in my family. It's it's just happens to be the month where there's a lot of birthdays in that month in my family. I think there's like five or six or even more of that with the grandkids and stuff in my family. But May's birthday month in the Hart family and Owen's birthday was in May. So it's, and then he died of course in May. So it's, it's a tough month from the beginning of May to the end of May. And with Davey dying and uh, so many guys, that they all seem to die in May. So 
In my family, it's sort of a, you got the black flag up for the whole month kind of thing, and uh, it's tough. But at the same time, with Owen, um, it's, 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 it's so nice that so many people remember him all the time, and they remember him in a certain way, like different than what you hear about other wrestlers. They, they remember Owen for all of his kind acts, and I think um, that's how I like to remember him. I, I, I have no problem... You know, the, on remembering Owen on the day he died, and you know, I, I know someone that wanted me to come out here and tell Owen stories for for an hour or something, but I think they'd mind. I don't really have any Owen stories that I haven't already told, and um, it's not so easy to talk about all the memories and things that happened with Owen. It's kind of a a bit of an emotional drain to you sometimes, and uh, so I I choose to when I think about Owen, I remember I just kind of usually watch some of our old matches back and some of our old promos and stuff. And I usually, I've been really lucky. I, um, I've been blessed with so many um, funny memories and stories about all, all of them, Owen, Davey Boy, uh, Jim the Anvil, uh, even the Dynamite Kid, and uh, you can, I can go on and on. But I have such good memories with all those guys that, uh, you know, when you start sort of, Swimming through all the memories in your head, you can find so many that make you laugh, and it's it's easy to smile when you think of those guys. What are the? Are there a couple of of, of the really uh, funny ones? Because Owen had such a great sense of humor. I I love the story about hacksaw calling down to the front desk. But uh, what really are there a couple that really stand out? Um. Well, I like to always tell the one about what he did with my dad, where he. There was a wrestler named Reg Park, uh, and he would. Um, <clears throat> Reg was the guy who made all the belts for WWE a few years ago. He's a great guy. He, he was a sort of a well-built. Um, he, like when he got into wrestling, I think he'd been a bodybuilder, so he had a pretty good physique. But if you ever knew Reg, he was like one of the nicest guys you could ever meet. Very quiet, kind of easygoing kind of guy, and. Uh, when we went to WrestleMania, I'm going to say WrestleMania four. I brought probably actually it was WrestleMania five. No, maybe it was four. I don't know, one of the two. But uh, I brought my dad down with me and my uh, youngest daughter, and we had a suite at the hotel. And uh, I just remember getting up in the morning. It was probably about nine thirty in the morning, and uh, my my dad was just kind of waking up. He had a big uh, nightshirt on. He's wandering around the, the <laughs> hotel room with a, a nightshirt on. And my phone rang. And I remember I got the phone. I answered it. And it was, I didn't know it was Owen because he disguised his voice. And he's like, anyway, he had this dry, raspy voice of like Reg Park. He could do Reg Park perfectly. And he said, is your dad there now? Just tell him it's Reg Park. I want to just talk to him for a minute. So I remember holding the phone and I go, I said, you want to talk to Reg Park? My dad was always liked Reg, and it's like, give me the phone, you know. So I had my dad the phone, and then Owen starts on my dad about, uh, you know, first they go through some nice, you know, how 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 are you, Stu? And you know, my dad not too bad, and they're talking away, and all of a sudden I could just see my dad's face changing, and uh, Owen was saying all kinds of stuff to my dad on the phone about you were a chicken shit, you were always afraid of me. You were always so gutless. You never had the guts to take me down the basement. I would have, 
kick your ass if you had and all this stuff. And my dad's like flabbergasted. And I just see him wandering around the room. He's holding the phone in his hand. And I'm like, he's talking to the nicest guy in the world as far as I know. And all of a sudden my dad's starting to get heated on the phone. And he's like, Reg, if you'd wanted to try me, why didn't you try me? And, uh, and I remember kind of almost being shocked at what the hell's Reg Park doing? Like, and the truth was, is that Owen, who kept like laughing because he could, he kept pushing all my dad's buttons and saying stuff to him, but he kept, uh, like holding the phone away from him and then he'd go back on and he'd start laughing again. And then he'd say something else to my dad about, you were always a gutless promoter and you know, like whatever it was. I just remember my dad getting so mad and Owen pushed it and pushed it and pushed it with my dad because my dad had bit into the, he'd swallowed this thing. He was, he thought he was talking to Reg Park and he couldn't believe it. And I just remember my dad slamming the phone down and sitting on the chair and he was like, just had this funny, sad look on his face and he could kind of a smile and he, he goes, I was, the bastard got me. <laughs> I remember I was like, I still didn't really know what it was until Owen told me later. But I guess uh, he pulled, Owen told me that he laughed so hard that he had to finally say to my dad after he really said a lot of, you know, strong things to him, uh, he finally had to just cut in and go, it's, it's me, it's Owen. I'm just, just pulling your leg or something like that. And that's when my dad slammed the phone down. And uh, so I didn't know till Owen told me later and would tell me often on the plane that that was the funniest um, memory that he ever had. He always pulled my dad's tail that day. And it was, there was that kind of stuff every day with Owen. And uh, you, you can live by those memories. Why didn't you ever try me? That's, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, we all wonder uh, what might have been with Owen. He always was just such a great performer. And uh, I think back to those days when uh, you had little, literally your brothers, and I, can, I consider Davy Boy one of them. But it wasn't an easy road for you in the WWF. People might remember the, you know, the, the big moments where you, you know, finally reached these heights, but you uh, struggled a while in the WWF. And, and when you look back at that... Uh, was it a really valuable time? Do you, do you cherish it in a sense? Because you never, ever gave up. Well, I, um, you know, I, I, I was always proud of my work. You know, I remember when I got to WWF uh, back in those days, how um, that um, they thought I was, they thought I was, couldn't wrestle. They didn't know anything about me. They barely heard of me. And uh, in those days, they'd stick you in a match with, um, a lot of guys that didn't know who I was either and didn't care who I was and didn't want to didn't want to perform with me didn't want to try anything with me they didn't offer anything to me it was just like go out there and let's just do nothing out there you know and, and uh, they just didn't I was not worth you know getting into a big sweat over like have, no one wanted to bump for me or fly for me or make me look good or anything like that and so it was really hard. I remember wrestling some guys that just purposely killed the match and didn't do anything with me. And when it came time for me to make a comeback or something, they didn't give me any, like the, they would move on my dropkick or whatever I did. They, they didn't trust me. They didn't give anything to me. And if you have enough of those kind of matches, which I did for three or four months, I was, 
I was plus one other match for, I think, almost six months straight in WWE in 1984. And uh, it was tough to, because they had promised me when they, when they brought me in, they said, we're going to put you with all the top guys and you're going to be a big star here. And I remember kind of rolling my eyes and thinking, I don't believe any of that. But at the same time, it's like, that's what they said. So I'll go, I'll be an optimist and hope that maybe they find some way to make me a star down there. But it was uh, very hard to convince anyone that I was um, any good when you, nobody, would, nobody would help me. Like you need to, Wrestling's a lot more like figure skating um, than anything else. When I think of pro wrestling, you need somebody to help you, especially if you're a, bad, a good guy. You need the bad guy to do stuff to you to get sympathy and then allow you to make a big comeback and kind of let you shine a little bit. But I, I wasn't in that kind of category at that time. So I didn't impress anyone with my wrestling style. Usually it was like an arm drag or a sunset flip or your very basic kind of preliminary wrestling moves. But I remember when they eventually tagged me up with um, Jim and uh, we worked with the Bulldogs. And I can remember Chief Jay Strongbow, who was one of Vince's right-hand guys in the, in the office in those days, he told my dad, he goes, he goes, he's finally starting to get it. And I remember my dad goes, he, he had it a long time ago. You know, he, he, I'd wrestled, he had it when uh, he got there. I'd wrestled uh, Nick Bockwinkle, who was AWA champion. I wrestled him for an hour draw in Calgary during the Stampede. And I, I'd, had, I'd wrestled some, I'd been to Japan. I, I was a better wrestler than they ever thought. And uh, I know that uh, I just was patient. And I know I told the story at the at the Hall of Fame this year about um, it was like I think there were very really it was the first match that Vince could watch me in a house show, not a not a TV taping. He'd seen me wrestle at TV tapings where you just do squash matches, and you know he'd watched uh, little little bits and pieces of me, but he'd never actually seen me have a bona fide real match with a real team in a in a, in a on a like a good spot in the card and where I could really perform. And that was why I told that story at the Hall of Fame was because um, we worked with the Killer Bees and we tore the house down. We were on like second match or something and we had such a good match and the whole place was just rocking and cheering like really loud when we went back to the dress room. And I can remember Vince standing there when I came through the curtain and he held out his hand and he goes, hell of a match. And I know there was a moment there where we looked at each other and he had a big smile I think he was genuinely pleased with my match. Like he, I don't know how he couldn't have been, but I think he he kind of looked at me like um, that was like I had no idea that you guys could be that good. And I think that was the first time I was on Vince McMahon's radar, and that's why I told that story. But I slowly but surely um, started to get people to give me a little more rope. Actually, the key to my my success all came from. The idea of turning into a uh, a bad guy with and turning partner with Jim the Anvil and being the Heart Foundation, because once I was, uh, I mean, I remember wrestling a guy named Terry Gibbs. I don't know if you guys remember Terry Gibbs. He was like a a, a job guy, but he would wrestle me. And uh, I remember he came back to dress him and he was talking about me after the match. And he said something along the lines that I would never get it. I just couldn't get it. I wasn't. Never get, couldn't understand what I was doing out there, or something like that. And I remember 
it bugged me that he said that I couldn't get it. And I was, I think I was probably one of my last baby face matches is at that, that time. And then they turned me into a bad guy with Jim. And it was such a great experience. I got to be the driver in the car now. I got to, I could be the, the bad guy and I could take all the Bret Hart's that were in WWF at the time and give them these great matches and really have some really great matches and show everybody that I could actually, that I could work a good match. And uh, that's what happened. After, once I tagged up with Jim, it was, I was, um, I was driving the car. Like they, we set the pace, we set the, the style and the, we build the story and uh, we just make the good guys look good kind of thing. And um, that was what saved me. Yeah, awesome. And so many, so many great matches along the way. And I, you know, the ones that stand out to me with Kurt Hennig and, and Roddy, and we need three hours to go into some of these. But uh, the one big uh, happening that stands out is the, the, is the screw job. And, and if you want to, everybody's heard about this. But the one thing that I like to know that I, that I want to talk about is the documentary, Wrestling with Shadows, which, uh, which is awesome that that was made because it really showed who you were. And the one point is that when it all came down to it, it wasn't a matter of you losing that belt on Canadian soil. No, nothing it was, to do with it, that. You know, I, even that, um, there was a, um, some documentary, or not something, something that came out a few months ago on uh, the screw job that they interviewed me for, but they did such a shitty job. I thought they really only made it more confusing. You know, the, 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 really the simple truth of everything is that um, when I found out I was working with Sean, I went to Sean um, and said to him, like, hey, Sean, I heard we're wrestling at Survivor Series. I just wanted you to know that I have no problem putting you over. I'll put you over any way they want. I have no problem dropping the belt to you. And I just wanted you to know that I would always be a professional in the ring. I wouldn't take out any of my... We've had some, we've, Sean and me had had some fisticuffs in the dressing room prior to all this. So I didn't want him to know... that. I wanted him to know that he would be safe in the ring with me, that I didn't carry any hard feelings towards him, and that I had no problem dropping the belt to him. And Sean looked at me and said, I appreciate that, but I just want you to know I'm not willing to do the same thing for you. And... That was it. That's what the screw job was all about. It's like, well, you, that is such an insult to tell somebody like, you know, I'm going to, I'm happy to help you and your family. But then he says to me like, well, I'm not going to do anything for you and your family. It's kind of like they cross each other off. It's like, well, well, screw you. You know, I'm not doing anything for you either. And uh, I just, I told Vince the next day after that happened and Vince was going to call Sean and me into a room and, and confront Sean on his, um, stupid comment and uh, the next day Vince never touched any of that and promised Sean the belt and I stood up in the room and I said well, I just want you to know I'm not sure I'm going to do anything till I know what's going on with my career and my because Vince was threatening to, to break my contract and so I was I was in a position of um, you know just trying to be professional and the, the whole screw job was just a case of um, somebody insulting you and telling you that he would never ever do anything like that never do the same favor for you and i was the champion i'm going i'm the champion here i just already promised him i'd drop the belt to him and i just stuck to my guns there i was like i'm not going to drop the belt to him till he loses to me somewhere 
and proves to me that he's got enough respect for me to, you know, to do the, do the honors for me, then I'll do the honors for him. And that's where the whole rift came in. But you genuinely have, have mended that fence. And, uh... Yeah, I, I actually just saw Sean not too long ago. And, you know, we, we got along like we did when we, like when we were good friends years and years ago. And it was, I don't think there's any issues between me and Sean Michaels anymore. And a lot had to happen uh, along the way there, but uh, what did it mean to be inducted the first time to the WWE? Because a lot of people didn't think that that might ever happen. Oh, it was um, very important to me, as was my career. You know, I, I, um, I had a, when I had my stroke in 2002 and I was in the hospital, which was bad enough as it was, like I was like, totally um, confused and uh, just totally bummed out about what, what having a stroke and not understanding even what the long-term consequences of a stroke were. But um, I remember they had just brought a phone to my room so I could make local calls. And I plugged the phone in and my phone rang and it was Vince McMahon on the phone. And I, was, I hadn't talked to Vince McMahon since I sat on a park bench with him when Owen died. I hadn't seen or talked to him in, in quite a long time. And I had a lot of bad, bad blood still towards Vince and the company. But it was out of nowhere, and I answered the phone. I remember there was this hesitation about, like, slamming the phone down. Like, I wanted to slam it down. But at the same time, uh, the, the other side of me, like, Vince was like a very much like a father figure to me and somebody I had a lot of respect for once upon a time. And I, 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 I restrained myself from hanging up on him and talking to him. And I was... Like I say, I was kind of a shattered mess anyway. From, I could barely hold the phone and stuff like that. And, uh, but he talked to me about... Um, I had always talked to Vince about releasing a Best of Bret Hart. Like, um, we always talked about, like, whenever I had a really good match, he would always go, that's what's going to go on the, the um, anthology we're going to put out of you Like when, you're, when, when we're done with your career. It's like you're going to have this... DVD set or whatever we, we we just talked about it and I remember he we talked about it that day on the phone and he said we'd like still like to do that with you and I said I'd I'd like to do that that would mean a lot to to me to have my I didn't want my career and everything I did just to kind of get erased and um, minimized and uh, so we had a nice talk and the more he talked he talked to me then about being in the Hall of Fame and I said well if you inducted if you ever offered the Hall of Fame for me, I, I said I would most definitely come. I feel I have a right to be there, and I earned it. And uh, <clears throat> so he he promised me that it would happen, and I was grateful for that. And I remember I kind of hung up the phone, and after we talked, and he gave me a big pep talk about I was a fighter, and uh, I you know I was going to beat this thing, and you know I I just found his words really helped. At, at that critical moment when I kind of <clears throat> maybe needed a pat on the back or some support. And um, so I was always grateful for it. I remember I hung up the phone, and that was the first step towards thawing out our, our bitter, pro- you know, the problems that happened between us. In this past year's class, and uh, long-awaited, a lot of uh, people wanted to see this happen, that uh, you were inducted again with... The Hart Foundation and a great tribute to Jim the Anvil Neidhart. And uh, I really, Brett, I thought it was awesome. Not only did you pay tribute to Jim, but also all of these other great tag teams that we 
had a chance to see back then, and there were so many. I, uh, my, my speech, in case you didn't notice, was really important to me this year, and uh, I wanted very much to speak on Jim's behalf and, uh, you, know, you know, just say some nice things about... Like, I watched um, some of these Hall of Fame speeches. I won't name names, but... <laughs> so many wrestlers Bill Billy? that were up there never thanked anybody. They thanked Stephanie and they thanked Vince and they thanked Triple H. And I thought it was such bullshit. You know, they should thank they should thank the wrestlers that made them and the wrestlers that worked with them. And I was really disappointed how so many of them never thanked any of the wrestlers that that that. Um, went to all the trouble to help them in their careers. Most of them never had any recollection of anybody helping them. And uh, I was disappointed with a lot of the speeches. I remember going, these guys are the shits. If they ever get me to go up there, I got got things I'd like to say about the wrestlers that worked with us and helped us. And, uh, you know, I was glad that um, I was able to, you know, even in a small way, to thank some of the teams like the Bees and the Rougeau brothers and the Haku and, uh, and uh, Tonga Kid. And, you know, there were so many teams we worked with, but they were, they were so good. And the Bulldogs, too. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it just insane that the Freebirds and some of these other teams, the Rock and Roll Express, are in the Hall of Fame when they never even wrestled in WWE? I was there, I was there in the dressing room when Andre the Giant fired Michael Hayes because he was drunk. And... He was fired, and they were done. And I know Terry Gordy came around later, but he, his brain had been removed by then. And, um, no, I mean, it's true. I mean, and Terry Gordy was a great wrestler, but um, he did way too many drugs, man. There was nothing. The lights were on, and nobody was home anymore. And uh, that's just the sad truth at the time. But I, I felt... I felt... Um, you know, that the Hart Foundation, not just the Hart Foundation, but the, the Bulldogs, the Demolition, uh, even the Killer Bees and the Rougeau Brothers, you know, as far as teamwork and, uh, and moves and things like that, they were, they were all established, great working teams from whatever territories they came from. But we were all really good wrestlers, and uh, to, to, to have that opportunity to, to thank them for for all the matches where they made me and all the matches that we had. Such safe wrestlers. Like Jim Brunzel could throw the greatest dropkick in wrestling and never hurt you. He was such a pro. Um, Brian Blair was a great wrestler. Uh, both the Rougeau brothers were, were, were solid wrestlers. You know, and I think of uh, Tito and Rick Martel, and you can just go on and on. Even the Rockers. How is it that the Rockers are not out in the Hall of Fame? And how is it that um, the Midnight Express are, or not the Midnight Express, the Rock and Roll Express are? I was there in the dressing room when they told the Rock and Roll Express that they were too small and they weren't good enough to be on WWE TV. And uh, I go, there's something wrong with the Hall of Fame when they don't pay homage to the guys that really did the work. You know, even Demolition, I, don't know, I think there's a concussion lawsuit going on where so they've been kind of blackballed they're not a lot they can't celebrate them or give them any credit for what they did they were they were the tag team through the uh, 90s or 80s and uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna give uh, the Freebirds a free pass into the Hall of Fame for nothing for being drunk all the time 
then All I, right. think, <laughs> I think you could give Demolition or the Killer Bees or, shit, even the, the Hillbillies, Elmer and uh, Hillbilly Jim. I mean, at least they did the work. You know, they were there, actually in the dress room putting their boots on. They did the time. And I think that's what I find sort of troubling about the Hall of Fame sometimes. Yeah, there, there's some politics involved. Uh, but I have to also give you credit. There was a little interruption during that speech. And uh, were you were like, what the hell was going on? I'm waiting for it to happen again. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be ready this time. Well, I, I, um, I felt bad that happened. And I was... I, when I think about it now, it's like you got that that stubborn heart, stu- you know, stubbornness. Now it's like I was determined to finish my speech. Yeah, damn it! And yeah. I wasn't. You did a great I, job. I came here for a reason. I wanted to speak about Jim the Anvil, and I had a good. I worked hard on my speech. I worked for about two weeks on it, sort of tweaking it, and I thought I had had it down right. And when that guy interrupted it and tried to ruin it, I was like, I think they were actually trying to clear everybody out of the ring like we were done like next and I was like no, I'm not done no. yet I gotta, I'm not even getting warmed up yet and so I I feel bad at what happened to him but um, really? it wasn't such a bad day for me it was more of a bad day for him exactly alright we're going to open it up to uh, questions here in a sec I just want to mention one thing that really stood out to me as you wrap that up Brett as you said uh, don't live the second half of your life regretting the first. And, and I just thought that that, that just really touched me. And I, and it, I, I know coming from you, uh, it, that means a lot. Well, I, I think um, that often, you know, I'm sort of, um, people get this impression that I'm, you know, angry, bitter guy that never got over what happened, which I never really got over what happened. But, <laughs> um, but I, I, at the same time, you know, I, I, I wouldn't change anything. I loved my career. I loved, I loved the work I had. I, lo- I loved working with Jim the Anvil Nightheart. It was so much fun every day. I laughed. I laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and had so many great memories with Jim. And and I just you know going back to all the years that I worked for WWF uh, and WWE, or I, I just had so many good memories of, and I've had that opportunity to work with all the great wrestlers that I worked with, from Andre to you know the other guys I've named, but the Bulldogs and I, I you know I just loved so much of what I did, and I worked so hard, and I still stand by my work today. Um, yeah. And so I, I don't have a lot of bad feelings about my career, um, but I, I do um, have regrets about some some of the stuff that happened, like my injury. I wish, you know, I wish that that um, Bill Goldberg had never kicked me in the head as hard as he could. Um, I don't know. I give a guy a Hall of Fame thing for for hurting as many wrestlers that Bill Goldberg hurt, but. And without consequence. I mean, he usually got a pat on the back and told how good a job he did out there when you were scraping the wrestler that worked with him off the mat. And um, so I feel bad sometimes that, um, you know, when Bill Goldberg kicked me in the head, I, honest to God, I lost um, about $16 million in like one second. Um, It's like all the money, all the contract money that I had, I just signed with WCW for. Three million a year for another three years on top of the 
two years that I had left on my original contract. So it was, it was bad timing and it was unfortunate. And I know Bill never did it on purpose, but um, I think that's why a few months ago I was as stiff as I was about um, Seth Rollins hurting guys in the ring. Is it, uh, to be honest, if in pro wrestling, injuries do happen. And there, there's always going to be uh, uh, injuries and things that happen from unexpected things. But it's not about hurting each other. You know, it's about, like I said, it's more like figure skating. And if you can't go out there and figure skate with me, don't work with me. You yeah, know, that, I'm not about you're, you're chopping me. I remember Ric Flair used to like chopping me all the time. And they hurt. You get these blisters on your chest and you handprint on your chest for like three days. And it's like, it's funny. I always remember going, that's what they do to the rookies. You know, they give them, they chop you and keep chopping you. And it's like, they, they think it's a badge of honor or something, which is probably why everyone in the building goes, woo, you know. But uh, it hurts. And I remember Rick telling me, I said, Rick, no more chops. No more chops. He goes, but it's part of my thing. I, it's, I, I do... I, I've always do a chop. It's like people expect it. And I said, if you do a chop, I said, I got a move I do. I said, you go ahead and chop me. Give me a big chop. I'll sell, I'll give you my whole chest and everything. And then I'll look at you like this. And I, then I'll punch you right in the mouth as hard as I can. <laughs> and I remember Rick, Rick looked at me and, and he said, are you kidding? I said, no, I'm not. I said, I'll punch you right in the nose as hard as I can. And we never did chops after that. And it was like... Yeah, awesome. Uh, more, more good memories than bad. That's fantastic. Uh, folks, we're going to open up uh, for a, a brief period here and get some questions in. Uh, I want to uh, shout out to our folks that are watching on, on Fight TV. If you're going to watch along with we got the, the Holy Grail coming up. The match with Bret Hart and Tom McGee. And if you're watching at home, you're going to have a second screen experience. You want to go to the WWE Network it is, uh, it just uh, do a search on Tom McGee, and it will be 19 minutes and 40 seconds in. I'll tell you again, but so you can get it queued up. Now, let's, uh, let's get some questions going. I think we've got a microphone out there in the crowd. Uh, Brett, Vince Averill from Los Angeles. Uh, yesterday, Arn Anderson told a story about you putting a prosthetic ear into his double C breeze. Do you have any recollection of having done that, and whose fake ear it was? It was some friend of T- Ted DiBiase's. Some guy that went to college with Ted DiBiase, and uh, I can remember sitting with him at the bar, and he could take his ear right off and show it to you. It looked like a little rubber ear. And uh, so they kept getting, uh, I remember Kurt and Arn Anderson were drinking. It was like, actually, I think it was Arn Anderson's last night in the WWE. He had left and was going back to uh, WCW, like the next day. It was his last. So everyone was sort of having a send-off uh, in the bar for him drinking with him and slapping him on the back and mostly just telling stories and having a good last night with uh, Arn. And Kurt kept getting him to sing some song about there's a, there's a ear in my beer or whatever. And it was like some Hank Williams song. Ear in my beer? <laughs> I think it was a tear in my beer is okay. how the song goes. But uh, he, they had dropped the ear into his beer and... And they kept singing the song, and Arn was singing it. And I remember everybody in the bar was in on it. Like, everyone was laughing. And uh, I wish they had iPhones back then with all the cameras. But uh, it was just so funny when Arn realized it. And when he looked at his glass, as, as drunk as he was, and he looked at the glass, and there was an ear in it. I remember he threw up all over the counter. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get another one in. 
Hey, Brett. Uh, Matt McCarthy from Rumford, Rhode Island. Uh, we all know how the relationship ended, but I'm curious. Do you have a favorite Vince story? Well, I have the one which I've told a few times about the strip bar in uh, San Antonio. It's such a great... I don't know if i got all day to tell you that story, but... Uh, all, I get to is, Tom. all I say is this, is that um, Vince showed up at this very um, fun-filled strip bar in San Antonio that we were all sort of celebrating. And we had just been told that um, we were going to start Olympic drug testing, like on a scale that nobody had ever seen before. We were had actually the Olympic drug testers hired to start testing us and to be no tolerance for anything, no drugs, no, um, no steroids, no nothing. Like every single thing, even marijuana was done, which I think sadly was really a big mistake because I think once they took away the marijuana from a lot of wrestlers, you'd see them down in the bars later just taking pills and drinking all the time. And you see all these wrestlers that died over the next 15 years. There was, a lot of them started from when taking away their marijuana. They'd go to their room and smoke a joint and go to bed. Nobody ever heard from them. Now they're in the bars drinking hard liquor and taking pills. And it's like that was a fatal mistake that uh, I think um, they eventually recognized that it was a step in the wrong direction. But anyway, I'll just say that with Vince, Vince showed up really drunk and... Um, I remember Hogan was talking about um, him and Hawk and Animal were in the bar, and they were Hawk was talking pretty brashly about how he was gonna they were gonna do their finish on Vince in the bar, and I remember hearing it and going, I, "That I want to see." <laughs> and so I remember saying, "I think they're gonna do it," and I remember telling Jim, and I remember Jim was pulling on his beard, and Jim was going. They don't get the guts. They're not going to do it. You know, and I said, yeah, they're going to do it. And I remember Hawk was already up on a pole. Whatever the girl was on the pole was gone now, and it was, a, it was Hawk up there. And Animal came up behind Vince, who was so drunk. I mean, he was, he was in a very happy place anyway. And all of a sudden, they, he picked him up, like came up from behind and put his head between his legs and stood up, and Vince almost lost his balance, and... I can remember, like, oh, my God, they're going to do it. And that, that finish of Hawk and Animals, that clothesline off the top, was a pretty painful move to take, especially on your knees uh, when you fell. It was, it was uh, you know, hard. It was just carpet in that bar. No padding. And uh, anyway, I just remember it looked so real. It looked like they were going to take his head off, and Hawk had been talking about it for the last hour about he was going to take Vince's head off. And I remember we were all sort of like, yes. Go, go. And then uh, Hawk dove off and gave this little powder puff clothesline that was all pretend. And Beefcake and Hogan kind of caught Vince and gently set him on the ground. <laughs> everybody gave a little golf clap. And it was like, I can remember going, how quaint, you know. <laughs> I thought they were really going to do it, you know. And I remember Jim pulling on his beard and going, Heart Foundation would have done it. And I'm going. <laughs> and I was like. Yeah, maybe maybe the Heart Foundation would have done it. And then I just remember I remember thinking, oh, my God, what did I just say? And I remember I had two shots of Jack Daniels in, in my hand, and I remember setting them, trying to set him down. And by the time I set him down, Jim had already picked up Vince in a bear hug. <laughs> and I remember, I'll never forget Hulk Hogan looking at me. He gave me this look like, do you got the balls to do it? 
or you're going to do it like Hawk. And I remember I just kind of looked at him and I took off and I took Vince's head off of that clothesline. Uh, all right, one more and then we're all going right. to get to the Holy Grail. One Check more. out We Watch Wrestling, by the way, with Vince and Matt. Hey, sir. Uh, hello, Jeffrey Harris. Uh, Brett, uh, as much as it means coming up from a guy like me, I just want to thank you for all the memories you've given us and the great career you've given us. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, and thank you for being here today. Um, my question is... Thank you. Thank once you, you for started, Once you started uh, getting into the singles act, um, was there ever a moment that sticks out in your mind where you realize, man, this is really working, and I'm really coming into my own as a single star? I definitely... One that sticks out for me was when you talked about going to Europe and how you were booked earlier on the card, and the fans like started like really coming after you because... They were really responding to you in Europe. Was there any, ever anything like that for you? Well, I had, um, I think I was on the radar for most fans. Like most of the fans are starting to really kind of appreciate how hard I worked all the time. And uh, my reactions going out to the rings were, were getting better. You know, everything with me was like, I can remember when I first came to WWF, I, there was um, a lot of, People used to talk about me having no charisma and I had no personality and I had this and I had that or I didn't have this or I didn't have... But, you know, the truth is it all comes from confidence. And, like, most of the time for me it was like um, I was always putting somebody over. You know, always putting somebody over. Like, we need you to put Mr. Perfect over because he's going to work with Hulk Hogan next. And it's like, well, what about me? Like, what about you guys were... You know, they promised me so many times that they were going to give me this big push and... That big push usually was uh, me tripping out of the starting gate, losing my first match, and then losing, like I lost a bad news. They had me break the trophy in that WrestleMania 3 or 4 or whatever. And it, it was like, I'm so close to, it's kind of a break. I remember it was kind of cool that I got to be the, one of the guys at the end of the Battle Royal. But then when it came to me wrestling bad news and exacting my revenge, I lost every night to him and got carried. You know, I got, and I go, that's, that's, how, that's how my baby face run started like tripping out of the gate and it's like a few weeks later and it's like i'm i'm losing every night to bad news or i'm losing the perfect or i'm losing to this guy i'm losing and they go well it's not working he's not getting over like he's we thought he was ready but he's not and it's like it's not me that wasn't ready it's you guys that are not ready and then they it really came to a head i think after we lost the belts to the nasty boys and we were in las vegas the very next day and um, they came in and they said, um, we need me to come up with a move, um, a finishing move, a submission move. And we talked about the, the scorpion death lock or whatever it is that Sting used. And, and um, <clears throat> somebody asked me if I knew how to put it on. And I said, I don't, I don't ever, I've never used it. And I went into the dressing room and asked somebody if anyone knew how to put on a scorpion death lock. And... Uh, Conan put his hand up and said he remembered how to put it on. And we went in the showers and kind of practiced around a little bit, and he showed me how it worked. And um, so I had a meeting with Vince that day, right after all that. And um, I remember they said, we're going to put you with Kurt Henning. I I said, I don't want to work with Kurt. He just won the belt. And they said, yeah, but it's going to be great. You're going to have great matches. And I go, yeah, but I'm going to trip out of the starting gate again. He's not, he just won the title yesterday. Surely he's not going to be losing it to me. So I'll wrestle him and, and lose every night for the next uh, three months wrestling Kurt. 
and then somebody else is going to step up and take my spot, and uh, and they'll get they'll end up. I I figured in my mind I I knew accurately, just guessing though, that the belt would probably change hands at SummerSlam, is what my head told me, and that's when I want to be in position to to for them to go. Okay, we'll put you with Kurt, and um, but. But I remember they wanted me to work with Kurt right off the bat, and I said, no, I refuse to do it. I'll just go home. I'll just go home, and you can call me when you're ready to give me this big push you've been promised me for eight years. Um, and I remember they sort of rethought it, and, and they ended up giving Kurt, they gave Davy Boy to, to Kurt for a while, which was fair because Davy had just come in, and they'd be kind of fresh. And as it turned out, by the end of summer, I was I was picked to work with Kurt and SummerSlam and then my, my real push started but you have to it's a chess game sometimes, you have to know when to stand up and say hey, wait a minute you know. and I'd been around long enough to watch all these chances go to everyone else and it was like, hold it, this is my chance now, when yeah. you guys promised me forever you're going to give me a chance give me, give me my chance and, and in fact I finally did get that chance Yeah, and it turned out very well Okay, they uh, call them enhancement matches, and uh, it's something we've all been waiting to see. Uh, they needed to put somebody over, big time. They knew the man to go to. So let's get to it. We've been waiting for it. Folks, let's bring out Tom McGee. Tom, welcome. Great to see you. I know you guys haven't talked in a while. So have you grab a microphone there? Just pick it up. So, what have you been up to? <laughs> I think, Tom, though, what we need to do, though, is just give a little background because you were an incredible athlete before you arrived into wrestling. Tell us a little bit about your background before that. Yeah, I grew up doing sports and always really loved physical culture, and so uh, I competed in most individual sports and uh, uh, also a lot of team sports as well. And then before I came to wrestling, uh, I was already a world champion powerlifter and uh, um, also had won, I think, the best international strongman contest uh, world championships at the time, um, world record holder, and... Um, had just played some professional football also. Uh, so then I went into Stampede Wrestling was how I, I got started. Yeah, with Stu. And so you had these, uh, I mean, you were an unbelievable athlete. It legitimately, not only did you have this great physique, but you, uh, we were used to seeing when you talk about strongmen, they look like Mark Henry. But you legitimately won these strongman competitions uh, had great uh, skills as a gymnast as well. What led you to wrestling? What led you to Stu Hart? So I was doing these other uh, athletic uh, and sports activities. And, um, you know, when you, have de you develop these physical abilities, you're always looking for the best place to, um, to put yourself where you can make use of the skills that you've learned and the abilities that you've acquired. And I, what, what captured my imagination was I was watching the first WrestleMania. And I thought, wow, that looks really uh, great and interesting. And it, it really, as I say, it captured my imagination. 
And I thought, I can really see myself doing that, and I imagine things I could be a part of in, in that. And so then um, um, I had my, um, my manager contact the WWE, WWF at the time. And, um, and from there, I made my way to Stampede Wrestling, where I uh, met Stu Hart, and I started to, uh, to um, on the journey to acquire the skills. Brett, do you remember your dad saying anything about this kid that he... Uh, yeah, I do. I only got... I would only see the Stampede wrestlers because I was one of that... I was one of the crew there with those guys for so many years. But uh, once I got to WWF at that time, I was on the road like forever. I never... I never seemed like I never got home. And when I did, I the last thing I was going to go do was go hang around with the, the wrestlers and, the, and go to the wrestling show in Calgary. So I, I didn't really know everybody, and I didn't really, um, like, uh, I, I just wasn't fully informed of who everyone was and what they were doing. But there was a lot of really good wrestlers. My brother Owen was wrestling then, and Brian Pillman was wrestling for my dad then, and, and of course, uh, Tom was working. And, you know, to, just to, to look at Tom, just to see him in those days, and to hear the, my dad was always impressed by guys that were, you know, really strong or really good wrestlers. And, uh, you know, when you met Tom, you knew he was, uh, you know, there was a possible superstar here that was going to really, um, could be a real asset to everybody. Because he, he looked like, um, I'll say Tom looked better than Warrior did as far as body went, yeah. but, which is Incredible. saying something. And uh, at the same time, he was legitimately one of the world's strongest men. And uh, all the stuff that uh, Tom could do with the somersaults and backflips off the top. What really happened for me was um, Owen. I got Owen uh, finally. And Owen was really good, too. Owen was, he was ready for primetime wrestling, I think, at that time. And a lot of people wouldn't have thought so, including Owen, maybe. But uh, I was a really eager to see Owen get down to WWE or WWF and uh, Owen finally had his tryout that um, that same day that Tom did I in fact I didn't expect really? to see Tom and then Owen showed up for a tryout and um, <clears throat> so I, I it was just a coincidence that Owen was there but um, I uh, when I found out someone came up to me and said yeah you're wrestling uh, and I knew Tom had just started in Calgary, who had literally maybe if how many maybe a couple months experience. I I want to think it was at least six months. Okay, so six months experience, and I remember I was tag team champion with Jim the Anvil Nightheart, and uh, uh, they came up to me and told me that uh, they needed needed me to work with uh, Tom McGee, and Tom McGee was going to go over, and I was like. Really, like this new guy that is just, can't even wrestle is going to be is going to beat me on TV, and and it's like I didn't refuse to do it. I just said I want to talk to Vince about it and find out why am I doing this. Like I I, I thought I was in a higher position, and if you need someone to do a job or a job guy, there's there's a whole bunch of them in the dressing room that could be better suited than me. You know, I'm your tag team champion and. Uh, I remember Vince said I, he, I think he was really smitten by uh, Tom, like really blown away by how he looked and what he, I think he saw a real superstar, like his, I think, 
I think he saw one of his future champions. Like he had everything. Tom had everything, but just now it was a question of whether he could wrestle or not. And uh, I, um, when I talked to Vince, he said, "I really want this guy. I want to see what this guy can do." And you're the only one that can bring out that kind of reaction from the crowd. And if he, if he wins, he's not going to get the right reaction if he loses. And then Vince promised me the match would never ever be seen ever. And ever. Another lie. But uh, before um, we talk about what you, the conversation you two had, uh, you've been to Japan, had some experience, not much. Did you feel you were ready for this? Well, I mean, from the from the get go, when I started wrestling, I was looking to get into the WWE. That was my target, and um, so I think actually I had been in Stampede. And I might be wrong, but I think I had been up there training under your dad's, you know, watchful eye, but also um, with Bruce, and of course Owen was usually there as well. Um, maybe even for it might have been a year. And I'm not sure if I'd been to Japan yet at that point, but um, what was the question again? Were you ready? I mean, oh, did was you, I ready? ready for this? this oh, was so so then I got the opportunity to go in, yeah. and so you've been already a professional athlete for a long time, where you're you're you know out there to do whatever the sport is and to accomplish it, and so you're very focused and you you know and you're ready. You have a can-do attitude, yeah. and I have been trained by you know these top um, people in the business so when I had the opportunity to go in there first of all it's very exciting and when you're in stampede wrestling there's a lot of people who were in there they want to get up to that level but their chances of getting there aren't that great but they're really all trying and you get the feeling of how significant and important it was so I did I really um, I took it very seriously and I was very happy to be there and grateful to be there but once you get there, nothing can prepare you for it because you show up there and there's thousands of people and you've got all these bigger-than-life characters, including Vince McMahon, uh, and it's like in your presence, they be, they're like vignettes. You're walking through and all of a sudden, boom, there's this figure and then there's another one and then there's the people in authority and you can hear them talking like, let's put him with this person, let's put him with that one, and then you're shuttled off somewhere else. And it's just like sensory overload, what's going on. Kind it's so surreal. intense. Yeah. So uh, I want to hear what the conversation was before you went out there. Uh, folks are going to watch along with us. The WWE Network, it's 19 minutes and 40 seconds in for a second screen experience. Brett, what did you tell him before you guys went out there? Well, Vince kind of put it out to me that he wanted me to, to he wanted to see if uh, Tom could be his next superstar he had and pretty much told me i have really big high hopes for this guy and big plans for this guy so mm-hmm. i need to i need to see what he can do and like i say that was at a time period when i wasn't didn't have a lot of that recognition yet that i got as being the excellence of execution and being this guy that could have a match with anybody and i remember it's like i remember i looked at vince and i stood up i said i, I said i'll show you what kind of talent this guy's got and I'll, I'll give you this guy when it's done you'll see what a good wrestler he is and uh, I'll, I'll put him over and I'll give you I'll show him in his best light where you go okay now I know what to do with this guy so I remember I went like I said I was not too thrilled about jobbing out to a guy that was a, a, a I'll say a rookie or mm-hmm. even a, a guy that had little or no experience and I felt I had 
you know, like I said, there was a lot of other guys that could have done that, I thought. But, but at the same time, the way Vince posed it to me, it was almost like a challenge. I need you to make this guy. I need you to... Right. So kind of like the documentary um, kind of says, it's kind of, it alludes to um, the hopeful making of one guy, which also ultimately turned into the making of myself. And right. uh, I don't disagree with that. I know that um, I went up to Tom and I said, Tom, we're working. You're going over. Um, give me your best three moves that you can do. Three things that you do really well. And he told me, I said, we're going to do a really simple match that's going to be just going to, I said, just trust me and follow me. And, and, and he, he gave me his three moves. I can't remember they are what they are. And you know, I haven't seen this documentary that we're, yeah. everyone's talking about. And I haven't seen the match yeah. Because it was stolen from a house by uh, the, the girl that was in the documentary stole it from a house and never returned it. And so I was a little annoyed when I heard all this stuff about this Tom McGee match because it was stolen from my archives. And um, but when I went and saw Tom, I said you know, we talked about some of the moves he could do, and I said, "Well, we'll do that, and then we'll do that one." And one. I said, "We got so we had three good spots for." Tom to highlight his um, backflips and triple somersaults off the top turnbuckle and stuff. And uh, we kept it really simple, which is important to anyone that wants to become a wrestler, is that all art is simple. And the best wrestling doesn't need to be so complicated and so choreographed that it never stops looking real. Yeah. Like nobody fights like ballet dancers. And uh, I don't know. I, I just remember going to Tom and I remember said, they got big plans for you, Tom. You need to just trust me and listen to me. And, he, and Tom did. He trusted me. We talked over the three moves that he thought would he'd like to put in the match somewhere, and I, we figured out where to put them. And it wasn't even, I don't remember even talking too much about the match. It was pretty straightforward, and Tom had been in the ring enough times that he was pretty calm, and he, I think he trusted me, and uh, we went out and uh, had this match. All right, and uh, we want to get to it, so... Everybody who's watching, I'm going to count to three and then say play, and we'll, we'll take a look at it. You guys can talk through this match. Your mics are live. Anything you want to add to it, and then we'll come out with a little discussion. Okay? So here we go. One, two, three, play. Okay, so the match is already underway here. Did look great, didn't he, Brett? <laughs> Brett, at what points are you talking to him here? I don't think any of I think we're just getting into a flow, kind of in the. Uh, the I'm trying to do the techniques that I've learned, the wrestling moves that I've learned. And um, the match had felt like it had an energy and a flow to it, to me. Like a natural kind of cadence. And, and of course, I did trust Brett. And I was relieved. And, you know, because when I was training in Calgary, you'd always hear stories about Brett and Jim and what they'd been doing. And, and so to have the opportunity to work with Brett, I was just stoked. And...
Let's say it's all very simple. You know, sometimes the the hardest part of a wrestling match is the first five minutes to to just to kind of get people to start watching the match. And, and um, you know, we just kept it very simple. And at this point, we I put in a few moves for Tom to do the truth. For a guy like Tom that was a gymnastics guy and was quite agile with all this kind of stuff, you know, to have him do a cartwheel or something, it looked so great and not very many people could do it. And Tom could do it, I think, in his sleep. Tom, you have not seen this, right? I saw it once during uh, a recent interview. But of course, I had I had a lot of confidence being in there with Brett. I knew that the match, you know, that I had my best chance of having a great match with the, the son of Stu Hart in from the same uh, school. Uh, Brett could uh, be a heel. Uh, and number whole, one, they've been giving me the finger my whole career. Uh, <laughs> I like about this match is that you never see me talking. No. You know, there, there's communications all the way through this match where there's there's things being said to each other, but you never see it. And it's it's just nice to see, considering when you watch wrestling today, all they do is talk in the ring. It used to be an tell, art form. Tell us when you did. Tell me what. Tell us when you did. When did you sneak that in there so that to help them through this? Well, I mean, it's hard for me to remember exactly. I just know we had certain spots set up. This was one. It was like I choke him over the ropes, and when I, I think he's going to drop kick me again over the top. No, maybe not. Sorry. <laughs> Wrong match. It was a while ago. <laughs> but, you know, we just kept it really simple, and I had, I had a lot of, you know, I was a heel tag team champion at the time, so I, I wasn't like a nobody. I was... The people, especially as the we were a heel team, so there were a lot of people that didn't like us. But it was um, just important um, to to teach, you know, to teach Tom. And um, I think this was probably I'm thinking without blowing my own horn, I was probably the best wrestler you ever wrestled up to that point, right? Was who? I was probably the best guy you worked oh, with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Up to that point. <laughs> absolutely. He'd worked with guys elsewhere, including maybe um, some of my dad's guys in Stampede Wrestling. But I was pretty experienced pro by this time. And uh, I knew how to get Tom over. And I knew if he just trusted me and listened to me, I'd get a little heat on him to get sympathy. But I wouldn't eat him up. And I'd keep him alive with uh, the right hope spots and stuff. Tom, so I'm talking you, to him right there, but you don't see it. Tom, did you feel uh, some magic in this, though, when it was going on? That it, there was I felt like the, the, that's a good word. Um, I was saying it as like a great flow and a magic, but yeah. Um, I felt like it was the match was really working, and I'm in there with one of the greats. And this wrestling is, as I learned, I, I ended up wrestling for five years. And it's very difficult to really do well. And in my experience, there's only a few people who can really do it super well. And, and Brett's one of those few. And so uh, 
you know, the, this is the way you would want a wrestling match to feel. But, um, yeah, so it's... But looking back, of course, I have a lot of recollections and memories that come while I'm watching it of things I'd forgotten. Were there times during this, Brett, you're saying, yeah, I am showing this. I'm showing Vince how this is done. Um, wow. I knew I didn't really think that much of it. I was just trying my best to have a really good match. You know, the truth is I, I always try to the best match possible with everybody I ever worked with all the time, which is why I think um, maybe I was as good as I was is because I just had this sort of joy of... Um, telling a good story with another wrestler, right? Especially in this time. As I'm, see, I'm driving the car in this match. I'm the bad guy. I set up everything. I can set the pace of the match, all the moves that follow, and, and when I want to get a little more heat up, I get more heat up. I'm, and, and, and Tom's kind of obliging me with whatever I need to do or whatever. And I remember I told him, I said, just listen to me. And Tom did a very good job of just listening to me. And I will say just for the just for the chance to say it, that Joey Morella was for sure by far the greatest WWE wrestler, ref, referee of wrestling ever. And he's a great asset in there yeah. too. You'd be surprised at how much uh, Joey's uh, helping me communicate with Tom and helping me get things done in the match. And I knew that this match was a huge opportunity for Tom and I really wanted him to succeed. I wanted, I had no problems making him... Uh, look really good so that Vince would give him a big chance and he might be a big star in the company and people would would uh, appreciate that I helped make him, you know, but um, wrestling things don't always go the way you plan. But it's, it's a very simple match, this match. It's very, not very complicated and it's really good for for people to learn from this match because it's it's um, it's how it should be done. And there's the finish. And Tom, thinking back, uh, what was going through your mind when that was over? I think, I mean, you've been training for a long time and you've been doing matches with re- uh, lesser wrestlers. Um, and, you know, you, now you're proud of this craft that you've uh, developed. And so you want to have a good match, and you want to, you want to uh, live into and embody and be this thing that you've chosen to be. And so I felt great about it. <clears throat> Less concerned about, you know, um, raising my hand at the end, more concerned about having done a good match, and also having had, in that case, the opportunity to show the, um, some of the uh, different abilities that I had than most people. And and so it felt great. And then, of course, you know, whenever you have a job, you always uh, are, you want to see the reaction you get from your peers and the people you're working for. I remember, what I remember the most about that night, when I think about it, was coming back to the dressing room after the match. And I just came back like I always do. Like, it wasn't that, it was just another match to me. But I remember Dinah, my kid, came up to me, and a couple other wrestlers had said to me like that Vince went nuts yeah. watching this match, that he started 
jumping around and he, he almost like he was going to have an orgasm or something. <laughs> Dynamite told me that Vince went crazy and said, that's my next champion. That's our next champion. And he was just going, off, going out of his mind with glee. And I remember I came back and nobody said anything to me. The only one that came, Dynamite came up to me and told me, like whispered it to my ear. He goes, Vince just went nuts watching this match. Vince didn't say a word to you? Didn't say anything to me. Just like, and little, so I always thought kind of went unrecognized, like, you know, I didn't get the credit for making Tom. They thought Tom did it all himself. And I think they did believe that for a while. But um, I just remember kind of being disappointed because Owen had his, um, his first match that night and he bombed big time and they, they didn't bring him in. He kind of, he, he, he screwed up a couple of his spots in his match and it just didn't come off very well. So I felt bad for Owen that he didn't do well, and I, the guy that I that didn't even know was coming, basically, he's got himself a job, and he may get the world title in a few weeks or months from now. I don't even know. I really, kind of like getting congratulated, and at the same time, you feel like you, you know, it's like kind of felt bad for Owen. Owen, they stuck Owen with a one of those enhancement workers that wasn't very good, and he couldn't do any of Owen's high-flying stuff. Owen used to climb up the ropes and do that thing where he bounces and jumps off, which was such an incredible move. But nobody could, could do those moves with him. They weren't, they weren't skilled enough, to, and Owen, they just stuck Owen with one of those jobbers, and he couldn't do it, and he screwed up all Owen's moves, and Owen had a disastrous uh, debut performance, and, uh, and at the same time... Uh, Tom, Tom stole the show and was the next superstar that was in Vince's eyes. And Tom, what did Vince say to you? Do you remember, I'm sure you must remember it vividly. I have uh, remember conversations with Vince that really stand out. Like I remember talking to Vince about working out, and he would talk about how if he had a good workout, then he'd give himself bonus sets to do more workout and work out hard. And, of course, as impressed, you have the, the leader of someone at the helm of such a big, successful uh, um, business, and but he's still in top shape. He looks like he can go in the ring himself. So, but in regards to the match, I never heard the feedback you're talking about either. I, I could feel the vibe that everything was really positive and things went well. But nobody told me that this means then you're ramped up to you're on your way. You're on your way. None of that. No. And and why do you think it didn't happen? In your well, I did have a wrestling career. For five years I wrestled, but I didn't make it to, obviously, to the level of, of that expectation or that possibility. And uh, I was behind the curtain listening to um, Brett talk a little bit about his experience in wrestling, and then you're talking about how Owen also had all these abilities, but just, it's a very narrow and dicey way to make it to the top. And there's lots of ways to get detoured by something you do or something someone else does where it doesn't happen. I'm glad I got the five years and the incredible experiences that I had in the wrestling world, which is quite unlike, I think, any other journey in life. Um, would I have liked to have gotten up to to be at, at the level that was possible, the people thought after they saw the match you and I had, to have had great matches with people at the, you know, like Brad at the top level, and, um, of course, everyone wants success in their life so they can do more for their parents. You know, my dad is dead now, and I never had the opportunity to do so much for him as I would have had I been a WWE superstar. Um, 
um, still, I enjoyed the life I had. I enjoyed the experiences I have. I'm not suggesting all outcomes are the same. But life is good, and I love it. And so no, no matter what happens in life, it's, it's wonderful to have consciousness and, and the gift of life. But, yeah, it would have been great if circumstances had turned out that I had been able to take that higher road that our match suggested was possible. Yeah. And, 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 Brett, so many phenomenal matches in your career. But you have to be proud of this one, that what you did for, for Tom McGee. Well, you know, I, I, I would say I would have done the same thing for any wrestler. And I was happy to do it for Tom. I was happy to, you know, happy to do it for the countless wrestlers that I did work with all that time during those years. But I do remember, I think, like, I, I'm not sure if this match, I wrestled Macho Man in, on a Saturday Night Main event. And um, I was, think it was, in, it was in Seattle. But I remember me and Macho Man had never wrestled each other, and Macho Man was really excited about working with me. And we, you know, we sat and sort of talked together and started working out a wrestling match for this Saturday Night Main event. And it was going to be such a great match. And um, we really put a lot of thought into the match. And it was a pretty complex and really, really going to steal the show at, on that Saturday Night Main event. And little did we know that Vince had scripted a whole idea of a match kind of in his own head about how he wanted it to go. So we have this meeting with Dick Ebersol and all these guys in, a, in Vince's office at the, the day of the match and uh, <clears throat> he goes yeah, we need to do a thing where you work Randy's leg you're going to injure Randy's leg and you got to work on his leg for the whole match and I was like Vince, I said if, you, if I work on Randy's leg that means he can't run and then we can't, we've got such a great match mapped out. It's going to be like a five-star match. It's going to be, it probably would have been the best match I'd ever done up to that time. And it was such a classic, great match all set with Randy. And we'd mapped it out. And, and he goes, no, you can't do any of that. You've got to work the leg. That's the story that we're, you know. And I was like, but it kills the match. Like, it's going to be a slow, you know, where we don't get to do all the running. We're both really fast style wrestlers. And he goes, that's it. And I remember he snapped at me in the dressing room in his office and said, you're the big wrestling genius, figure it out. And I remember kind of sitting there, kind of almost a little bit embarrassed, like he kind of shut me up. And I was sitting there going, I'm the great wrestler, figure it out. And I remember, for me, it was a little moment of like, that, that's a pretty big compliment to have Vince McMahon say, you're the big wrestling genius, figure it out. And I remember I took it as a huge compliment, like, okay. So we did, we figured it out, and we worked a match where we worked Randy's leg, which wasn't as good, but, I mean, uh, we did it. But it just, what I guess I'm saying is that I started to realize that, that maybe that match I had with Tom stuck out in Vince's mind, and it's like they started to realize that I, I, could, I could be a much bigger star than they had anticipated. Wow. That, that was awesome. And uh, listening to that again was just fantastic. It, it just brought back so many memories, uh, not only of that day, but also when uh, we had the opportunity to work together. And you know, Brett is, you know, Brett is Brett, man. He tells it uh, uh, the way he sees it, and uh, he doesn't hold anything back. And it was just great to uh, talk about some of the memories, uh, some of the. Uh, uh, some of the parts of his journey, and then to have Tom McGee come on stage, and they were able to watch that match together, because it's just amazing. It shows you just what a, a, an incredible, a skilled 
individual Bret Hart was that he he put him over you know so you know so well that uh, you know he tells how he went backstage and and Vince didn't even pay attention to him because he was just so blown away by you know his next Hulkster I guess uh, didn't turn out that way but man uh, it was it was really uh, something else to to have those two together on stage and I want to thank uh, you know of course Conrad for giving me the opportunity to be a part of that but also the people at Fight TV, Mike Weber, and those great folks for allowing us to use that uh, audio. But, uh, you know, check out all the stuff that they've got. And they'll be back for StarCast, the StarCast taking place in Baltimore coming up um, that first week of November. So uh, check out that. And, of course, you know, they've got um, another great AEW event taking place there. So uh, don't miss it. All right. I want to make sure that uh, our folks out there, you know, if you haven't had a chance, you hear me talk about it all the time. Join us on Patreon. It's a great way to support the podcast. And, of course, we've got a lot of great content on there. If you just want to get it uh, for $4.99 a month, uh, that gives you the, uh, the podcast early and ad-free. Uh, but, of course, if you uh, become a, a Mooney or a Legion of Who member, uh, a lot of other great perks that come with that, and you can uh, find out more. Just go to patreon.com slash primetimemooney. That's patreon.com slash primetimemooney. Also, email me. I, you know, I answer all those emails. I uh, look at that account every day, and I will get back to you. So if you'd like to email me, uh, for you know, give me some suggestions, uh, you want to uh, suggest uh, guests, uh, whatever you want to talk about, uh, you can reach me at primetimemooney at gmail.com, primetimemooney at gmail.com. And, of course, follow us on our social media outlets at Primetime Mooney at Twitter and Instagram. And uh, we've, got, we've got so much going on out there. We've got a vault episode that uh, we put out every week. And we go back into the vault. And uh, this past week, we had Coco Beware. And I just wanted to bring that up because <laughs> you know, Coco, when he did the, the podcast, and, you know, when we wrap it up, I always, you know, will say to them, hey, you know, how can folks get in touch with you, uh, you know, can give me an email or you want to give us your social media. Well, he gave us his phone number and I even said on there, you know, Coco, you sure you want to do that? And he's, Oh yeah, yeah. And I think way he was thinking that people would contact him would be, you know, promoters for bookings and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, well, uh, a couple of days after that uh, podcast that originally dropped, I got a phone call from Coco saying, man, Sean, can, can you get, can you take that phone number down? <laughs> because his phone just blew up. People were calling him uh, 24-7, basically. I mean, just, and he's like, man, yeah, please take that off. So uh, that was pretty funny. Uh, so anyway, when you, re- when you listen to that vault episode, that number will not be on there. But uh, it, is a, it is a great story, and, and it's a great podcast, so listen to that one one of our vault episodes. All right, we'll have another original episode, though, of Primetime with Sean Mooney, PTSM, as we do every week, a brand-new episode, and we will certainly have another one coming your way next Wednesday at 6 a.m. Don't miss the brand-new Network Classics, as we're calling it. That will debut next Monday as I uh, take you for a little ride through Saturday night's main event, the very first one. Until then, folks, thanks for listening. I'm Sean Mooney, and I am out. Mm